Good evening, Rua Church. Uh, I'm Alexander. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9 in your Bibles. We will be uh, in verse 23 of Luke chapter 9. And uh, once you have found that text, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. It's going to be seated. The title or the, the main idea for our study uh, tonight is Cross Carriers. Cross Carriers. And I mentioned this last week, but uh, last week we kind of artificially divided the text. Uh, when, we, when we read last week, all of what we read is really included with this section. So when, when we're studying tonight, verse 23, remember, verse 23 and, and onward of Luke chapter 9 doesn't take place as an isolated statement in Luke's gospel. It actually picks up on the confession of Peter uh, and then ultimately the instruction of Jesus about himself. And uh, just to point your attention to that recent instruction, uh, Jesus has said about himself that it is necessary for him, the Son of Man, to be rejected, uh, for him to suffer, for him to die, and for him to rise again on the third day. Now, this is a correction, we talked about this last week, of the idea of what a Messiah is. A Christ, or a Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, is not someone who's gonna come primarily as an earthly king in power. Rather, at his first coming, he's going to suffer, face rejection, and die. This is what it, what it means for him to come as the Messiah. Now, that's not at all separate from what we just read in Luke 9.23, because the instructions of what a follower of Jesus is to do, uh, what a follower of Jesus is like, what, his, what encompasses his life, is actually guarded by who the Messiah is and what he comes to do. You'll notice that there's a, a link between his, his instruction about himself and then his, his instruction about what a, a disciple or what a follower of him must be like. And so uh, when we talked about this last week, uh, we, were, we were discussing it primarily in the section of Jesus saying, uh, who do you say that I am? And depending on the answer to that question, uh, answers a whole host of other questions, right? For example, if you, if you hear Jesus' teaching tonight and you see uh, bearing a cross, denying myself, uh, that doesn't sound all too appealing. Uh, it's likely because Jesus hasn't primarily been identified as Lord and Christ first. If you answer that he is in fact Lord, he is in fact Christ, then what necessarily follows from that is he gets to set the terms and conditions of whatever following, discipling, contract follows after that. He's, he's after all the Lord and the God of all of us. So who you say he is is intricately linked with uh, what you do in response to his call. And uh, I want to maybe guard a couple of dangers that we might face uh, this week. Uh, in this text, uh, 
there's, there's so much richness in the call of discipleship, there's so much of a cost, uh, that one of the dangers that we face uh, is we're immediately tempted to make this a legalistic standard by which we think we can earn salvation. That's one of the dangers. We think that if we deny ourselves enough, if we uh, beat ourselves into shape, that this will curry favor with God, and thus we will be sanctified and saved. That's a danger in this text, and that is not what the text is teaching. We'll talk more about that. But another danger that we have in this text is hearing the high nature of the call and immediately saying, well, he must be speaking in in this case in hyperbolic terms. He can't really be meaning that we deny every instinct in ourselves because, you know, the culture primarily disciples me to actually indulge my instincts, indulge my senses, do what I desire to do. At the core of our culture's teaching about yourself is that to be truly happy, you need to be doing the things that you want to do at every point in time. That to deny yourself in any sense is actually going to lead to unhappiness, discontentment, and disappointment in this life. Jesus' uh, teaching about disciples is actually opposite that. He says, ultimately, if you want to save your life, you must deny yourself. So this is uh, at the core of it. We, we risk softening the message. We also risk amplifying the message too high where we think this is a means of earning grace and salvation. So knowing those two, let's say, extremes, we want to look at the text and see, okay, what is Jesus exactly teaching about carrying the cross? Now, it's, it's worth noting uh, that to our ears, what he's just recently said in verse 22 is not altogether too radical, okay? He's gonna be rejected by the scribes, he's gonna be rejected by the Sanhedrin, he's gonna be rejected by uh, all, these, all these theologians. Okay, no big deal, we already know in the Gospels that these are the bad guys. But that misses, I think, the radical nature of what he's just said, right? Imagine uh, today, Jesus comes, he's teaching his disciples and he says, uh, if you were to go and ask who actually agrees with me on what I've just taught you, uh, you won't find desiring God, the Gospel Coalition, Ligonier Ministries, PCA, SBC, no one will agree with what I just said. But I'm going to be rejected by all of those people, and I'm still asking you to follow me. Now ask yourself the question, if he's saying this, the chief theologians of his day, the people who lead and teach Israel, the the holders of truth who interpret Scripture, if these people are going to reject Jesus, what would it take for a disciple to follow Jesus? Think about what it would take for you to ignore the teachings of all of those people that I just listed, all of those organizations, and cast off their assessment of who Jesus is and instead believe who he says himself to be. Now, what what kind of things would that person need to do for you to believe them, for you to follow them, for you to listen to their teaching? That's the gravity of what he's just said. And then he pivots and he says, by the way, chief among following me is not just understanding who I am, what kind of Christ I'm going to be, but also this, you must deny yourself you must daily take up your cross and you must follow after me or you must be following after me. The idea of all of these texts is a radical self-denial that demands a conscious choice, demands a conscious choice. This is not something that happens accidentally. He's not talking about at some point in your life, you need to have professed faith in me at some point. And then if you've done that at some point in the past, it kind of counts ever more going forward. He's talking about discipleship in terms of an ongoing daily activity of self-denial and belief in God. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you're, if you're looking at these, uh, these commands, these demands of discipleship, notice first who the command goes to. The command first goes to anyone. He says, if anyone would come after me, 
And he's speaking to his disciples primarily, but also to the crowd. This is an offer to anyone who would hear his words and respond. Anyone has this offer. If anyone hears these words, what does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? And he's going to summarize it. If anyone would follow after me, if anyone would be my disciple, that's what it means to follow after someone, to be his disciple. If anyone's going to do that, this is what is the sum and substance of the life of a disciple. He must deny himself. He must regularly take up his cross, daily take up his cross. And he must be following after me as an act of discipline in his life. This is what it means to be a disciple. Now, what's interesting here is, uh, is the self-denial component, the denial of self, is probably the most radical of the three, and it really gets flushed out in the other two. But the idea of denying your own will in favor of God's will is so countercultural. If you were to try to explain to anyone else that just found out you were a Christian, they don't really know what that is, and you're trying to explain what it's like to them, and they say, well, you know, can you do this thing? And it's something that God has prohibited that we do. And it's something they don't quite understand why God has prohibited that. And you say, I don't do that not because I don't want to do that. I actually do that because God has commanded me not to do it. It's his will that I don't do it, so I don't do it. Imagine what, that would, what kind of message that would send in our culture. Our culture says, you do the things that you want to do because those things will make you happy. And, and Jesus says, the first step of being a disciple is self-denial. Now, what's, what's interesting to understand about this is one of the ways to press this too far is to say that every single desire that a human has continually from all time is fallen and is wicked. And we know that's not true because by the common grace of God, there are people out in the world who can make good, positive decisions, who can make positive self-denials for the sake of charity, for the sake of family. We know people who can, for example, deny their own wills and work really hard so they can send their kids to college. We know people who can deny themselves and serve other people just for the sake of charity and because they believe in benevolence and good things. So this is not, Jesus is not saying that kind of self-denial. We, we know that sometimes to deny yourself is something that other people who are not Christians are capable of doing. But I submit to you in this text, this is not primarily what's being addressed. He's talking about a self-denial that goes beyond the scope of what someone in their natural man is capable of doing. He's talking about a kind of self-denial that goes beyond what we would all be capable of doing. Now, he says that that is primarily characterized by a self-denial. And, and then the question is, okay, if we're denying ourselves, then who are we listening to? If we're denying ourselves, who are we following? Well, if you deny your own will, this, is not, this doesn't leave you with no instructions. It actually leaves you with clear instructions from Scripture. So uh, to deny your own will is to follow God's will. And to follow God's will is to say, okay, whatever Scripture says about X topic, I will believe Scripture and follow Scripture on that thing. Now, uh, on some areas, that might be perfectly in line with what you wanted to do before you were a Christian. That might be something in line with what you were raised to do as a, as a right thing, as something you would have done anyway. For example, scripture says you should love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us have been discipled with this kind of ingrained in us. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. But what if scripture elevates the standard and says something contrary to our wills? What if scripture raises the bar and says something radically different than that? And, in, and then now we have a choice. We can say, do I agree with what scripture has just said? Or do I want to do what I want to do? This is the question we have to ask. So to deny yourself is, is kind of the center point of this discussion. And he describes denying yourself in the following phrase, uh, you must daily take up your cross. You must every day resolve to bear your cross. Now we know what the cross is. Uh, if you're familiar with Christian literature or Christian art of any kind, the cross is depicted all over the place. 
Many of us even can't go hardly a week in Indiana without seeing a cross painted somewhere on some building or on someone's car or on someone's jewelry, anywhere, right? We see crosses all over the place. Now, the cross has largely been romanticized for us, but the cross is not, in the first century, uh, a romantic symbol. The cross is a picture of radical abuse and ultimately death. What does it mean to carry your cross? Well, uh, the Romans perfected a practice that was first established by the Persians, which is the practice of crucifixion. And to carry your cross refers to one of the stages of this process, right? So uh, in Jesus' passion when he's suffering, remember they say you have to drag your cross from this point where you've just been scourged all the way up to the place where you will be crucified. This is him carrying his cross. Now, a lot of uh, artwork depicts the cross as the full thing that then goes on the ground and then is resurrected. Actually, the, the cross that people would have carried is actually only the, the horizontal half of that, that beam. It would have been about 45 kilometers, it's made out of solid wood, and you would have had to, as a criminal, drag this thing up to the place where you're going to be executed. You are literally carrying the thing that's about to be used to kill you, and you're doing so in a weakened state. So the image of cross-carrying was popularized by the Jews and used to say, you have to be able to deal with the worst thing that life can throw at you. To bear your cross is to say, I'm gonna take everything and everything, the worst of the worst, and I'm gonna take that. That's bearing your cross, that's carrying your cross. And Jesus uses that language, which is rooted in a grotesque picture of suffering, and says, if you're gonna be my disciple, what self-denial looks like often is cross-carrying. What self-denial looks like is actually going to be a kind of suffering, a kind of pain, a kind of hardship that will be difficult to endure. Now then the, the question right after that, we might be asking, why on earth would anyone do that? Why would, why would I do that? Why would I deny something of myself and face hardship as a result of it? That just kind of seems like a lose-lose situation back to front. It doesn't make sense to me why I'm doing it and I suffer as a result of doing it. Well, why would I do that? He's not gonna explain it yet. He's gonna explain that in coming verses, but the, right after that, he says, you daily take up your cross and you follow after me. You are following after me. This is an ongoing daily resolve. This is a regular decision you make on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis as a Christian. It is not enough for us to say, well, at some point in the past, I resolved to follow Christ. And right now, you know, we're kind of not on speaking terms, but at some point in the future, hopefully we'll be back together. A daily discipline of following Christ. This is what it means to, to follow after him. The connection that Jesus is drawing is from, the ver- from verse 22 to verse 23. The Christ must suffer and face rejection. What's going to mark his followers? Suffering and rejection. This will mark not only the Christ and his mission on earth, but also his disciples and those who come after him. It is a daily death. It is a hard kind of life. And this is not, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about self-denial, we're talking about taking up the cross. This is not about hating our bodies. Scripture is clear that the human body is made in the image of God. Humans have value and worth. It's not about beating ourselves into submission or mutilating the flesh. It's not what this is about. It's about denying the sinful self, the, the sin nature which is inside all of us, denying that and taking up our cross and following after the higher and greater teaching of Jesus, which is contrary to the world's message. The world says those root desires that you want, these are things you should indulge in because it will lead to happiness and joy and satisfaction in this life. And if anyone asks you to deny yourself in any way, this person doesn't want you to be happy, this person doesn't want you to experience joy, this person is actually has it out for you. No one would do that in their right mind. And Jesus says, actually, if you want to find life and be happy and be satisfied, you have to die 
to yourself on a regular basis. Now the question then, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone die to self in order to live to Christ? Well, uh, Jesus is going to go on to explain that this is actually rooted not in this life, but it's actually rooted in the ultimate view of eternity, which is to come. But Paul uh, will say it in 1 Corinthians 9 in these terms. He says, look, every single person runs a race in order to win a prize. But when athletes exercise self-control, they do it to win a perishable wreath. But when we do it, we run in order to win an imperishable wreath. It's actually not all that different. If you uh, know anyone in the world who's ever achieved success in some way, professional athlete, professor, someone who's made an amazing startup business, at some point in their journey, if you've ever gone and watched their, uh, their life or, or how they've accomplished these things, they, they root it in discipline, self-denial, denial of immediate pleasures for future success. Paul is drawing on that picture. He says, look, if, if, you, if, if athletes can do this and be successful, if business owners can do this and it leads to a greater happiness, a greater success, a, a sense of accomplishment, and they're doing it for something that's going to perish in their lifetime, why would we, as believers, not do the same thing, employ the same logic and same wisdom, and just extend the timeline a little bit, not to this lifetime, but actually to eternity? We're running the race to win an imperishable wreath. So you actually run the race out of the motivation, out of the affirmation from Jesus that this will actually be worth it in the end. So much of our understanding of the Christian life is this kind of self-denial, which essentially leads to we're going to be miserable and we're going to be happy about it, and there's not really any upsides to that. But actually, Paul says it's actually a wise decision to be a Christian. It's a wise decision to follow Christ because on the time scale of eternity, you will actually be way better off and way happier that you did that than you would be in the immediate sufferings that we have in view in this life. People do this all the time. People make these kinds of decisions on a regular basis. Well, one of the things that uh, comes to mind for me is this, uh, this documentary series. Some of you might have seen it. Uh, I watched it in high school, and it was actually about uh, the Navy SEALs and their training course that they do, and they put individuals through, um, and this is called uh, Bud's Class 234. And it's a six-part documentary series. I think it's like a four-hour total long documentary, and I watched it just on YouTube, right? You just try to find the next video in the series, and you watch it. And when I was in high school, I was amazed by the, the grueling punishment that these guys would put themselves through, the kind of training they would lay in 60-degree water, at the command of their instructors, by their own will, they're a totally volunteer force for the hope, for the longing, that one day they'll be Navy SEALs. And in this process, the, there's a crew going around interviewing these different guys as they're dropping out all over the place. They interview one guy who's particularly chipper, and he's, he, you can tell he's going to make it to the end of this, this rigorous training. And he says something to the effect of, look, what is five days of miserable suffering for a lifetime of pride? What is that? What is that trade-off? Now, if he's applying that logic, that denial of self for an immediate reward of pride, joy, honor, glory for being uh, someone who's accomplished this and who now serves as a Navy SEAL in the military, if he can apply that logic to something that will perish in his lifetime, will perish even at the termination of his career. How can Christians not take the same logic and just say, look, we're, we're on the same playing field. We agree with that logic, but we're actually just drawing the timetable out a little bit further. We're saying for eternity, if you keep eternity in mind, but what we're doing, sacrificing ourselves, dying to self, is actually worth it on the larger time scale. This is the kind of uh, decision making we do. Interestingly enough, uh, in, the, in the first uh, like 10 minutes of this documentary, one of the instructors is, is talking to the class and he says, look, if you're gonna make it through this process, winning here is a conscious decision. Winning is a conscious choice. And he's, he's obviously talking about making it through a survival obstacle course. 
uh, and, and, and enduring to the end. He's talking about it only on a time scale of like six weeks. But I, I submit to you that the teaching of Jesus on this is not altogether different, just with a larger time scale in mind. He said, being my disciple is a conscious choice. Following after me is a conscious decision that you make. It's not something that happens by accident. It's not something that just happens to you by passive, uh, uh, by passive happenstance. You need to choose to follow after me, to do so on a regular basis, to deny yourself actively. And this is what it looks like to be a disciple. Now then, uh, what is the reward on the other end of this? Why would, why would anyone put themselves through that kind of self-denial? Well, he, he actually will go on to say it. Verse 25, look, if you're thinking about just the short term, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses himself, he forfeits himself? What does he mean by that? Verse 26, if anyone's ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He's talking about, on the timescale of including Judgment Day in mind, including the final eternal uh, summation of history as we know it, when you consider that timescale in mind, what you're risking is being neglected, being ashamed of Christ and him being ashamed of you on that day. But what you're gaining is if you deny yourself now, he won't be ashamed of you on that day. He will actually find you vindicated and, and reward you on that day because you have been found as his disciple in his fold and he can bless you richly. This is, this is the idea. He's not saying just do it and trust me. He's saying do it for the sake of a reward that I'm promising you will happen. On the day when the Son of Man comes, there are some people who will be ashamed of him. There's some people he won't, who won't be ashamed of him. And the people who will be ashamed of him will be found wanting on that day. He will be ashamed of them as well. And if someone is not ashamed of him, if someone is not uh, displeased by him, if someone has not put him off, has actually borne their cross and followed him, this is the kind of person Jesus is going to raise up on that day, and they will be found vindicated and rejoicing. Now, what all that means might sound, let's say, particularly uh, romantic, but what if someone denies themselves, maybe for a purpose other than Christ? What if they deny themselves for the purpose of making it to the end? What if, they, what if they just do it for some ulterior motive? And Jesus actually guards that in verse 25, or sorry, verse 24. He says, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. This is not just about anyone in the world who thinks asceticism is the way to go and self-denial is the way to go. They will be vindicated on the day of judgment. No, no, no. He's saying you have to do it for my sake, under a desire to find me under a desire to know me and to be united with me. If you do it for that reason, then you'll be found vindicated. Notice that's a, that's a strange guarding of terms. But we can all think of examples of someone who is not a believer, who would deny Christ, who would not find themselves to be a Christian, but who has lived in radically self-sacrificial ways in this lifetime. We could say, well, what about that person? They deny themselves, or they deny themselves pleasure. They do it for the benefit of others, for the people around them. What about that person? Is this the same kind of thing? Well. Jesus would say, no, because what is the motivation for doing it? Why have you done it? This is interesting because it also guards the legalism that we talked about earlier in the text. If you deny yourself daily in order to curry favor with God, to be found self-vindicated on the day of judgment, this does not apply to you either because you have to do it for Christ's sake, meaning to be aligned with Christ is why you do it, not to make your own righteousness. You do it for my sake. This is a strange kind of teaching. This is a radical kind of teaching. 
Now, given that motivation in mind, that we're, we're pressing on towards eternity, we have, we have that timescale in mind, uh, now let's zoom in on what it means to be ashamed of Christ. What does it actually mean when he says, uh, I will be ashamed of you if you are ashamed of me? Well, what, what does that all entail? It's, it's probably strange language, right? Well, to, to be ashamed of Christ, uh, what would that look like? It, w- it would primarily look like someone who does not really believe what Christ says. They don't take his word at, at value as worth living and worth dying for. Um, shame of Christ uh, is someone who's not actually willing to live this thing out. They might be willing to profess it in the right groups, but in other places they'll deny it. They might be willing to affirm certain things, but when it, the going gets tough, the self-denial gets too hard, they're, they're off. This is what shame of Christ looks like. If you're ashamed of Christ, notice what he says, you're ashamed of him and of his words. Shame of Christ and shame of his words is, is no different. For, it's one and the same. So, well, what does it look like to be ashamed of his words? Well, we have scripture, both Old and New Testament, and scripture teaches some things that, depending on when you live in history, uh, could be radical, and at different points in history, there's different pinches on that, right? At our time, this is pinched in, in particular places. Uh, human sexuality, the design of marriage, the image of God that's imprinted on the human being. What does it mean to be operating justly in this world? These are things scripture speaks clearly about. And some of us might think, oh, scripture's teaching is actually counter to culture on this and to the extent where I might actually not want to agree with scripture on this way. Maybe for some of those things, maybe not for all of them, but there are some things that scripture teach that we find ourselves not being so excited about because if we tell someone else that we believe this, we know that that's going to face rejection, hardship, scorn, shame, whatever it is. And if, and if that happens and we, uh, we are ashamed of Christ, we are ashamed of his word, well, this is something that he teaches. If, if you're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of you. If you deny his words because of cultural pressure or because someone else said, don't listen to that, it can't be true, you're, you're facing shame. And you can either be ashamed of Christ and his words or you can be scorned and shamed by the world. Either way, when it's all said and done on the final day, if you were ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. And if you uh, glory and revel and live by his words, he will raise you up again and find you vindicated on the last day. John will uh, say, say it this way. He'll say, look, don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father cannot possibly be in you. And the, the world is filled with all these things. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All of these things are things that the world says you must do, you must indulge. But the world is passing away and the things in it. But the one who is in Christ, the one who's in the Father, he will remain into eternity. He will remain into the end. This is the same kind of teaching that Jesus is saying here. If you are ashamed of him and you instead choose to identify yourself with the world, well, you're identifying yourself with something that is perishing, that is passing away. And not with something that's eternal that is going to last into all of the ages. This is the kind of thing that he's teaching. Now, just to paint a picture of this, uh, Luke's actually already done this. He's kind of laid pictures throughout his gospel. In Luke 6, 46, there's this picture of a builder building a foundation with the knowledge in the future that there's going to be a storm coming that's going to either sweep the foundation or the foundation's going to withstand the storm. Now, what, what would that look like in these terms? Let's say... Uh, you gain everything this world has to offer, but on the day of judgment, what you've built and what you've gained does not make it through. Would this be a worthwhile and a wise investment of your life? 
No, it wouldn't. This would be like if you owned a uh, house on the beach and you were upgrading it, you were investing into it, and you start to uh, build these upgrades and you design it, and then a storm is coming, a hurricane's coming. Everyone's evacuating the city, and what you're doing is you're in the house making repairs and upgrading this house, which is soon to be destroyed. It doesn't matter if you own the whole house, it doesn't matter if you own the whole beach side, because the whole thing's going down. So what would it profit you if you own all those things and in the process you lose your soul? If you lose yourself? What, what good is that? It's not lasting, it's not worth investing in. So instead, what should you do? You should save your life, forfeit, forfeit the property, sell it, get rid of it, put off all these things, and listen and heed the warning of a judgment to come. This will actually make you vindicated. You will actually be found in the end rejoicing because you've made a wise decision. You have to live your life in light of the eternal consequences of how we live. Now, if, if this all sounds like a lot of work to do, a lot of stuff to obtain, things to accomplish, and you think that's a huge burden, that, that no one could possibly do that, deny themselves on a regular basis, who could do that? Well, Jesus says, look, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's not asking us to do this by our own strength. In fact, many people have written on this, and, and one of them has this wonderful quote, I just want to read it to you. He says, when we are denying ourselves flesh and blood, protest against the cross, and they resent it. The human sinful nature cannot willingly bear such burdens. It is only by the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit that the Christian can learn to take up his cross with eagerness and even last into glory with it. But if you should take the attitude, I must be strong, I, it will require all the effort I can muster, then you are in a bad way. He goes on to warn that all of these efforts of our own will are doomed to fail. Or if they succeed, they will kill our spiritual health. They will kill our life because we will think at the end that we have done it by our own merit and our own strength. When Jesus bids his disciples to follow after him, he's not doing so on the basis of uh, his disciples earning salvation or bearing a load that they couldn't possibly bear. In fact, he's not even asking them to do something that he's not gonna go run ahead and do first as the first fruits of all those who would come after him. And then he's gonna send his spirit afterwards to empower people to live this thing out by his grace in faith all the time. So if you're looking at this self-denial standard and you're saying that's an impossible burden, well, Jesus is going to, in the rest of his gospel, teach how it's actually not that impossible because you will be grace-empowered to do so. You will rely on prayer. He's going to teach that in Luke 11. Rely on prayer to do this. Daily repentance, daily bread from the grace of God. Ask of the Heavenly Father and you shall receive. You do it by his grace, not your own strength. You do it by the strength of my spirit, not by your own power and will. In fact, doing it by your own will is, is impossible. There's no way for you to accomplish this kind of thing. So you can't earn it. We can't possibly do that. Well, there's another, let's say, danger in mind in this text. Uh, when we think about earning it, achieving it, trying to do so by our own strength. And we think about the extreme, uh, the extreme rigor involved here. And I mentioned this danger earlier. Uh, we say about this, well, when he says deny ourselves, he, he certainly can't be talking about everything that the human heart wants. Because we know that humans are made in the image of God. Humans bear God's image. So certainly there are some things that a human heart wants that are good. And then the question is, okay, how do we know what is sinfully affected part of the will and what is the part of the will that you deny? 
What is the part of the will you listen to? What is the part of the will you, you reject? Well, uh, we know that some of us have particular sins that we might struggle with, and we might seek to justify and vindicate and say, well, actually, I desire this thing, so it's okay. It's okay because I, I'm made in the image of God. God created me. I'm part of his good creation. All true. Therefore, this part of my will is actually something that passes the test, even if scripture teaches against it. Well, well Jesus would say, actually, that's not true because our will is made in his image, but it's also fallen. So how do you know the difference? Well, if your will and what you desire is actually in line with God's word and what he wants, that's a perfect part of your will to listen to and obey. But if your will, what you want to do, is actually in denial of the word of God, then you cannot carry that thing out. This plays out on, on so many different levels. Who we choose to spend our time with and how we choose to spend our time chief among them, right? In this world, we have autonomy over time, autonomy over our schedules. We work where we want to work. We interact with who we interact with. And chief among this is we want to have relationships with the people we want to have relationships with, primarily romantic, to the point where now if, if you've been in a long time committed marriage relationship and, and you fall out of love with that person using the world's language, then the world will say you're totally justified in doing that as long as you're with the person you really love. This is every romantic movie you've ever seen. And scripture says, actually, no, sometimes self-denial is the higher way, the better way, the true way to do, denying your own will, bearing your cross for the sake of being obedient to the word of God. Don't be ashamed of his word. Obey it, listen to it, and trust it. And his word will find you vindicated in the end. You actually won't regret that decision. What is a lifetime of suffering and misery for the sake of being vindicated in eternity? To paraphrase that Navy SEAL. What is it? It's, it's nothing. People make these decisions, like I said, all the time. These are simply wise choices to make. Now then the question is, okay, well, what if I'm not so convinced about eternity? What if I'm not so convinced that that time scale is an accurate time scale to listen to and to obey? What if, what if that is not the thing that I'm uh, agreed with? Well, that actually is, remember, the very first question we're asking, who is Jesus? If you say Jesus is God and God's son, and you believe that, not because the religious teachers teach in accordance to it. Remember what I said earlier? If every theologian of our day denied Jesus, what would it take for him to do for you to believe him over everyone else? Well, he'd have to do some pretty significant stuff. Maybe he'd have to heal a lot of people. He'd have to do a ton of miracles. And maybe he would have to come back from the dead after being killed. Maybe this is what it would take to believe in him. And for the disciples, that's actually what it does take. They actually reject his teaching for quite some time on who he's going to be as a messiah. They actually try to eventually bring him into Jerusalem with an army and with, uh, with uh, a following so he can have political overthrow of the Romans. But Jesus persists. He dies on the cross. And then his disciples scatter thinking everything's lost. And then he resurrects on the third day. And he comes back. And now Peter is found believing. Thomas is found believing. All the disciples are found vindicated except Judas who uh, was the one who betrayed him. Now, what it took for them to believe him and his teaching over and above what everyone else was saying was actually that he rise back up from the dead to testify as a living witness to these things. For Paul, it doesn't take the testimony of the disciples. It actually takes Jesus showing up in the flesh on his road to Damascus for him to listen to and to obey Jesus. So can we demand similar significant signs from him in order for us to be vindicated in our, our demands? I won't listen to this testimony, this witness, unless Jesus shows it to me personally or resurrects from the dead in my seeing. Well, actually, he teaches about that. He says, uh, blessed are those who see and believe 
but blessed are those who have not seen and who will believe. He's teaching, he's talking to, to Thomas after Thomas touches his, the holes in his arms and in his side. He says, blessed are you who see and believe, Thomas, but even more blessed would you be if you did not see and yet you still believed. Well, how do we not see and believe? Well, we have the testimony of scripture here, the recording of the apostles, the testimony of thousands of years of church history, all testifying to the same truth, that Jesus did in fact accomplish all these things, that he did uh, die the way he said he was gonna die, that he did resurrect, that this was actually prophesied from of old all throughout the Old Testament. And he does this, and then in the future, we have actually the recorded history book of all these things happening, and then we're asked by Luke's writing in, in this gospel, I'm writing this to you so that you may have certainty about the things which have happened. I'm writing to you so you may know the things which have transpired. Well, uh, Luke's saying that, and he's been persuasively writing to us, which, which we've been studying together. So if we get to this point and we say, well, the self-denial piece can't be fully true. It can't be what it seems to be. It's actually usually because we've, we have some doubt about who Jesus is as his identity. Because if he's Lord, if he's God, if he's the Son of Man, he actually gets to demand whatever he wants. He gets to say, be this way, and we can't negotiate it. If you're witnessing for Christ and you're, you're teaching the gospel to someone and they say, well, what about this thing that you Christians believe? That's kind of weird. I'm not so sure I'm on board with that. You don't have authority to change the terms and conditions of what it takes to believe in Christ. He has set the terms and conditions. He has set the standard and his yoke is easy and his burdens is light. That's, that's his own teaching on the subject. Now to us, that might seem crazy because we know that there are things that we are asked to give up, relationships that we put uh, put ready in front of God. So if, if we hold on to Christ, if we hold on to his teachings, we are legitimately risking this friendship, this family member, this relationship. What about that? Well, he says he understands, he hears, he knows that it's cross-bearing. He actually describes it as death to self. And he says, trust me, it'll be worth it in the end anyway. Trust me, it'll be worth it in the end. And then he doesn't just do that and then ascend on high. He actually goes and dies on the cross himself to show you that this is not something he's going to say to ask of us and not do himself first. It's actually rooted in what he did first, that we follow in his footsteps as his disciples. So when Luke is, is saying this, he's not saying it as something we do to curry favor with God, to build our repertoire, to somehow find ourselves holy and vindicated. He's saying we actually do this because we believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did and accomplished all the things he said he was going to do. So what does cross-caring look like to you on a regular basis? Well, uh, it could be dying to the thing that you want to do that Scripture says is forbidden and you shouldn't do it. That could be what it is like. What if you struggle with lust, and particularly kinds of lust that Scripture forbids? Adultery outside of a, uh, outside of a relationship. Being attracted to someone and sleeping with someone who Scripture says you cannot sleep with that person. What if that is the thing that you want? Do you indulge that desire, or do you die to that desire and live to Christ? He's not saying it's not self-denial, but he is saying it's actually worth it because it's the will of God. Well, what if that's not the thing that you need to die to? What if it's uh, a particular hold over a certain area of your life, such as finances, such as your time, such as your career, things that you have said, God, you can have access to all of me except for this piece of my life. And he says, you know, if you, uh, God, you can take me wherever you want. I can spend my money however I want for you, but I won't change this career because this is something I've been working for for my whole life. You put this, you say, God, you cannot have access to this. Well, sometimes self-denial looks like being willing to put that on the offer if it means missions, or if it means the success of the local church, or if it means the success of something else God has said is your duty, like saving a marriage or loving someone who's in need. What if that is the thing that you have to 
die to? What if it's loving a person in your life who is impossible to love because they hate you for the testimony you bear about Christ? What if that is the thing that you are asked to die to on a daily basis? That is a conscious choice you have to make on a regular basis to love someone who is otherwise unlovable. Not because they're an unlovable person, but maybe because they have particular issue with you and what you believe as a Christian. And as a Christian, we're, we're not to turn away from those people. We're actually to love them daily, die to self, and love them as a testimony of what Christ, who has loved us first, has done. We know love because he first loved us. What if that's what it takes? What if it's forgiving someone who sinned against you and who's done so on a regular basis and is asking once again for forgiveness? How you choose to forgive that person or not is actually determined, uh, determining how, how much you believe the words of Christ. Are you going to deny yourself and forgive, even if it hurts, even if it's painful? Or do you hold on to that thing, develop bitterness, and say, I'm actually vindicated in this because they've wronged me in some way? That might be a legitimate wronging, but that's actually kind of what all, all of what forgiving is about. Because all of these things, our willingness to die to them, and our willingness to gain and obtain Christ, is actually a testimony to how worthwhile Christ is for us. In, in economics, they call this opportunity cost. You do certain things at the expense of other things, such as how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your, your days, opportunity cost. And as, as a Christian, it, it's, it's not really all that different. We're, we have an opportunity cost. We can indulge ourselves, which comes at the cost of certain benefits in the future, or we can deny ourselves now, and it'll cost us maybe pleasures, temporary pleasures, Maybe it'll cost us a certain kind of temporal happiness, which isn't all that satisfying anyway. Maybe it'll cost us something that's actually near and dear that we think we actually can't go on without. What if it costs you your life? And the opportunity cost is, it might cost me my life, I might have to die, but I will be vindicated in the end by my master. This is the decision that Jesus makes when he goes to the cross. He says, look, I don't go to the cross and get crucified. I lay down my own life for the sake of who I love. Jesus isn't asking us to bear a cross unwillingly. He's actually holding it with open arms. You can choose to bear this cross. And if you do, my love and love for me will hold you there. This is what will keep you there. Just like for Jesus, he could have called down a whole host of angels to vindicate himself and to free himself from that occupation. But his love for his children keeps him on the cross. So that he suffers and dies, not as someone who's un unable to get out of this bondage, but as someone who's actually at every single moment able to end his suffering at that moment. And he still suffers and dies. And actually, you know, not only a couple decades later, one of his disciples, Polycarp, says, you don't need to tie me to the stake. If denying Christ costs me being burned, my love for Christ will hold me to the stake. You don't have to tie me there. Hebrews tells us that Moses was willing to bear the scorn and the shame of being identified with Christ rather than the indulgences and the riches of Pharaoh's house. Well, Pharaoh's house is terminated in, in within 40 years. His whole army is wiped out in the Red Sea. And Moses is found vindicated in the end. Now, at that time, that is such a stupid decision to make if you look at just that 40-year period. He's a shepherd out away from uh, Egypt in a place where he has to get his own water, he has to get his own food, or he could have been in the king's courts in Egypt but he chooses to be identified with God's people rather than to indulge in those pleasures. Was it worth it? And we have to ask that same question. No one, none of us has a crystal ball of what that will actually cost us. None of us can actually see into the future to say, I know exactly all that I'm signing up for ahead of time, so I'm okay with that. That and no more. We don't get that choice. 
What we are asked to do is to die, deny ourselves, die to ourselves in order to follow Christ. And if you're resolved on the front end that it can cost you your life, then you know, you're not really risking anything beyond that. But I think there's a certain kind of self-denial, uh, which is probably worth talking about given our context, which is that for most of us in, in the United States, it's not going to happen where we are burned at the stake for our belief in Christ. We're not going to be hung. We're probably not going to be stoned to death. If you're a missionary in a foreign context, that's a legitimate risk that you take. To die in, your, in that moment to risk suffering, pain, torture for the sake of Christ. There's another kind of self-death that happens in the West, which I think for us is a particularly painful one to bear. We know about acute pain, pain that happens instantaneously and is horrendous. We also know about chronic pain that happens over the course of one's entire life. Well, which one's worse? Well, in the moment, the acute pain is much worse. But at the end, actually, if the acute pain goes away, not so bad. The chronic pain, though, people really struggle with chronic pain. The regular endurance of pain all the way through their lives. As Christians in the West, this is typically what self-death looks like. It doesn't look like a moment of death and a blaze of glory. Typically, it looks like regularly waking up, sometimes with no one around you knowing exactly what you're dying to, and still taking up your cross and saying, I'm going to choose to believe Christ and to love him and to follow his will rather than what I want, even if it means I'm going to suffer as a result of doing that. It might cost me a job. It might cost me a friendship. It might cost me happiness in this life. But is it worth it? That's the kind of self-death that we are particularly exposed to in the West. And I think it's also the one that's particularly difficult for us to do. And that's not, to, that's not nothing to scoff at. That's not something we shouldn't consider on the front end of being a disciple. But we don't have authority to change the conditions and say, well, we're going to alter it so that being a disciple is easier. Actually, just the opposite. We have to hold the standard, hold the line, die to self in order to be vindicated with Christ. It's not something we do to curry favor with him. Rather, Anyone who truly believes in Christ, who's truly a disciple of him, a truly a follower, actually will do this. This is something that is simply a mark of being a Christian. Just like bearing fruit, doing good works, just like loving enemies, this is something that marks Christians. This is not something that we do to become a Christian. But nevertheless, it's something that we are asked to do. True faith is never apart from works, as James would say. If you really have a genuine faith, if you have a faith that is to be found as true and authentic and identified in Christ. This is something that will coincide with the active denial of self, the active living towards God, the active pursuit of holiness and righteousness, which includes disciplining your mind, soaking it in scripture, putting off the teachings of the world. It also includes disciplining your body, sometimes denying earthly pleasures for the sake of a future reward. It, with Christians, this takes the place of spiritual disciplines, right? We, sometimes we fast, sometimes we get on our knees and we pray, Sometimes we, we do things that the world would say that's foolish, but we do it in order to sharpen our senses and to say we're okay with suffering in a temporal sense for the sake of a future kind of thing that we can be identified with. Spiritual disciplines is a wonderful way to die to self, live to Christ as an active discipline of following him. But so is just living a pure life for the glory of God. That will sharpen your senses in a, in a miraculous way. And if you think for one moment that you're doing that on your own strength, you're fooling yourself. Or maybe you are and you're actually hardening your heart towards the grace of God. We never do this without prayer, without reliance on the word, without reliance on the church to help us and to support us. This is something as Christians that we do as a daily discipline, but not on our own strength. 
Paul will say, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's the one doing it. We're merely in the passenger seat. But that doesn't mean it's not a conscious choice. To say so would be a complete denial of the human will. It is a conscious choice to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's what's required of us. And as Christians, we will be found vindicated in the end if that is the choice that we make. And if you're listening and you're saying, well, that doesn't make any sense and I'm not so sure about this Jesus guy, uh, all I can say is if he really did resurrect from the grave, he really is worth it. That's the, the full sum and substance teaching of Scripture. That he is not someone who uh, is asking us for things that he is not himself willing to do. He actually knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to experience temptation. He knows what it's like to suffer and to suffer horribly, ultimately to death, and to do so for you and for me. Now, if that is true about his life and his mission on earth, well then, if we're his disciples, surely we'd be willing to do something similar, right? A disciple is no greater than the master. If the world hates him, it will hate us. If he suffered for the choices that he made, we will too. This is part of what it means to be a disciple. There is no other road, there is no other way. But, in the end, we will receive an imperishable wreath, which will never be taken away, which will never be lost or destroyed, which neither moth nor rust can tarnish or eat away at. It's actually a treasure that is eternal and way worth more than anything we could have in this life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you particularly for your example of cross-bearing. Lord, it would be impossible to do what it takes to be a disciple if you did not empower us to do so and give us an example and a model to follow. Lord, we thank you uh, for all of the work that you did on this earth, suffering humiliation, even to the point of death, and how you did that not, not for your own sake, but for the sake of your bride, for the sake of your church. And Lord, we, we simply want to follow you obediently, whatever the cost. Would you give us grace as we figure out exactly what that looks like? And Lord, if we know and we become clear on what that looks like, would you give us grace to do it? It's not an unclear teaching, but Lord, it is a hard teaching. So would you give us grace as we work this thing out? Lord, we pray this all in your holy name. Amen.